Let's pray. God, we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you based on the death, resurrection, and life of your Son. We ask that this would be a time in which we sit under your word and begin to fulfill the the words of Isaiah and the words of Philippians, that every knee will bow to the Lord, your Son, that this would be a time in which we would bow to your word and what you have for us today. I thank you for the privilege of being able to speak these truths, to try to attempt to speak of things too, too glorious for our, even, even our human language and um, our inadequacy to capture these things in words. I ask that you would uh, work during this time through your spirit to press and write these truths onto our hearts so that we might be a church that is more able to catch a vision for the beauty of the gospel of your son and to reach the lost as a church that is not only consumed by the gospel but consumed for its advance. Amen. Philippians 4, 1 through 3 is today's text. Philippians 4, 1 through 3. Hopefully you've been able to see that throughout this series, as Kurt's preached it and as Joseph has stepped in and now myself, that the main theme throughout the book of Philippians has been this idea of being consumed by the gospel being consumed by the gospel, the gospel, the saving message of God's saving activity in the person of Jesus Christ based on his incarnation, his becoming human, his living, his dying, his resurrection, and his enthronement. That by faith and repentance, we participate in that saving reign of Christ, and we are declared forgiven. We see this, this theme in, the, in what might be the theme verse of the book, Philippians 1.27, where Paul speaks of living worthy of the gospel. That is, living a life consumed by and in keeping with the nature of the gospel. It dictates how we live our life. We see that also in chapter 2, for example, where we're to be consumed by Christ so that we actually reflect the humility that we see in Christ. Or even in Paul's motto, that Uh, For me to live is Christ. My life equals living for Christ, following the dictates of Christ. He is my Lord, Philippians 3. I pursue knowing after Christ. We're consumed by the gospel. But a corollary theme of this that that you can see throughout the book is that we're not only consumed by the gospel, but we're consumed for the gospel, We're consumed by the gospel in order to be consumed for the gospel. And what I mean by that is consumed for the cause of the gospel, for the sake of advancing the message of the gospel, for the sake of reaching the lost, spreading the good news, the Great Commission. We see this, for example, in chapter 1, where Paul's motto, as we said, is to live as Christ. And because of this, because his life is consumed with Christ, he actually views his imprisonment 
as an opportunity to advance the gospel. And he praises God that he has done so. That people know that my imprisonment is in Christ, literally. Or for Christ. Or in his opening prayer, Paul speaks of the Philippians as partners with Paul in advancing the gospel. These are people consumed by the gospel so that they can become partners in the gospel. There's a fellowship to advance the gospel. And throughout the book, Paul identifies various ways in which the Philippians are to be consumed for the gospel, for its advancement. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 27. Just flip a couple pages over. 1, verse 27. This, this theme verse, maybe, if we can call it that. He says that we're to live worthy of the gospel, how? By striving together for the faith of the gospel. How? Standing firm, steadfast, that is persistence, perseverance, in one spirit, with one mind. That is unity, harmony. So this is a, there's this idea of perseverance and unity. These are the ways that we advance the gospel. Uh, go a little further to chapter 2, verse 14 and, and following. Chapter 2, verse 14 and following, Paul speaks of being the lights in the world. That is, we're a people consumed for the gospel. We shed the light of the gospel. How do we do this? Verse 14, doing all things without grumbling and disputing. There's that unity theme again, by being united. Verse 16, also by holding fast to the gospel. There's that idea of perseverance and steadfastness again. And so we see that we're to be consumed by the gospel for the gospel. And this is all throughout the entire letter. So when we come to our text, we see that many of these themes are going to be popping up. When we read it, you'll see tons of these themes. It's like the idea of unity, perseverance. They're all converging and getting poured into this, these three little verses. What he's doing is he's applying these themes to a specific situation with the Philippians. Thus, when we read this text in light of the whole letter, what we're going to do is we're going to look through it with these lenses of being a church consumed for the gospel. When we start noticing these themes popping up, if you were to read the letter in one sitting, since it's a letter and that's how it would have originally been read, you would have come to these verses, seen these themes, and said, this is how we're to do it. This is a specific application for our church, something we need to work on that's going to help us be a church that's consumed for the gospel. And we see that, for example, in chapter 4, verse 3. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. He speaks of these two women, and we'll read the text just briefly, but he speaks of these two women, and he says, they have shared my struggle in the gospel. Or as Anasby helpfully adds, in the cause of the gospel. So we see that this is his concern in this text. So let's read the text. Philippians 4, 1 through 3. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So the question we want to ask of this text, and this will, this will dictate how we're going about this sermon, is the question, what does a church consumed by the gospel for the gospel look like? What does it look like for a church 
to live consumed with the task of advancing the gospel. And we'll look at four things that we can find in this text. The first is that a church consumed for the gospel prizes its members. A church consumed for the gospel prizes its members. Look at verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul describes the Philippians as my beloved, my brethren, those whom I desire, I long to see, my joy, my crown. And this serves as the basis then for everything else he's going to say. I'm, I'm going to describe you as these type of people. This is what you are to me. In chapter 1, if you want to turn back to chapter 1, looking at Paul's thanksgiving, you see this theme. This is where it's the popping up again. Chapter 1, in verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. We could, we could say, every time you cross my mind, it causes me to burst out in thanksgiving to God. Every time I think of you, I just praise God for his grace that he's demonstrated in you. I praise God for what he's, for, through his grace, what he's caused you to be, what you, what you mean to me, the service that you've done for the cause of the gospel. Verse 4, Paul is always offering his prayers for the Philippians with joy. Verse 7, it is only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. I like, going back to chapter 4, I really like how he calls him my crown. Think about that, my crown. Something he prizes, he values, he holds dear to his heart. I think maybe a way we can kind of contemporize this and make it something we understand a little bit better is like Olympians, they win medals. And that's something you wear that you say, I am proud of this. This is something I value. You show it off. You don't wear it like you're, you're like, oh, I'm all embarrassed about it or something. This is something you've earned. You, you, you value it. You prize it. It's the whole point. You wear it on your chest. It's there for all to see. I live at Trinity's campus, going to school there, and... For whatever reason, the international composition, the fact that there's a lot of young people there, it's like a baby-making factory. There are babies all over the place. I mean, everyone is having kids, and there's just tons of babies, and there's tons of young children running around all over the place. I mean, they love it because they can, they can put sports teams together and play with each other. But one thing I've learned uh, from my time there, and we have, we have some young parents here and a lot of new children here and stuff, is that parents are obsessed with their kids. They're obsessed with their kids. And Facebook is like a museum of this obsession. Okay? And I personally don't have a Facebook, but I did for a while, and Anne does. And I don't know what it is, but it's like, cannot resist posting picture of cuteness. It's just like, there's this obsession with our children. And especially the parents who have, like, it's their first kid. That's the worst. It's like a disease. It's just like... You're the best child. Like, you've done something no one has ever done and you burped. It's amazing. <laughs> like, there's just this obsession. They want to tell everyone about it. Like, who wouldn't want to see this picture of my baby with jello on his face? It's cuteness. Everyone, I, you just want to show it off. You value this child. You prize this child. You're so proud of this child. That's kind of how Paul views them. You're my crown. I want to brag on you. I value you. I love you. They're his crown. 
Is this how we view our fellow believers, our fellow church members? Man, you should meet this lady at my church. She does these little tasks that no one ever noticed, but she does it faithfully, week in and week out. I praise God for the grace I see just in her life, where God's gifted her, gifted her in these areas that are so vital to our church, and most people may not notice, but man, is she a gift to our church. Or I, man, when I think of this guy, I just burst out in praise of God's grace in his life. He's so faithful teaching the scripture. Or, or he, this, this man, he lost his wife recently, and God has just poured his grace into his life where he's been able to remain faithful and trust in God, although he doesn't know why. We love our fellow brothers and believers, fellow, fellow, fellow believers and our fellow brothers and sisters. They're our crown. They're our gold medal. They're our, the baby that we're taking pictures of and wanting to share with everyone. We value them. We prize them. He uses familial language, family language, brothers and sisters, taking the metaphor of the family. Think of that. Your primary community, the tightest uh, of all relationships that we can really think of, and he applies it to the church. This is now your family, brothers and sisters. He says, my joy Many people have noticed that theme of joy throughout Philippians. Very prevalent. He says, this prevalent theme that you see, I'm applying that to you. That's what you are to me. You're my joy. Why is it important for the church that is consumed for the gospel to prize and value its members as such? If we don't love each other, how will we ever be a church that cares enough to encourage each other? As we're on this task, as Paul does here, to live consumed for the cause of the gospel. A church that doesn't love each other also can't function properly. We can't equip each other, encourage each other, work together. And if a church isn't functioning properly, it will be severely handicapped in its mission to reach the lost. And so a church that is consumed for the gospel, first of all, is a church that prizes its members. It's a church that loves each other. We value each other. We care about each other deeply. Secondly, a church that is consumed for the gospel stands firm. A church that is consumed for the gospel stands firm. Look at verse 1 again, chapter 4, verse 1. This functions something like a hinge verse. It kind of closes off the previous section that Pastor preached last week, um, but it also points forward and kind of leads into this section. So you have these key words, therefore. Therefore, that is, in light of the danger spoken of in chapter 3, in light of the false teachers, in light of these enemies of the cross, we have to stand firm. There's something that we're standing firm against. But also notice the, the phrase, in this way, which some translations don't translate. The NASB has it. This idea of, in this way, stand firm. That is, in the way of fixing our eyes on models of apostolic Christianity, as Kurt talked about last week. In the way of living with a vision of our heavenly citizenship and our eventual full experience of that citizenship when Christ returns to resurrect our bodies. This fits with that theme throughout the New Testament that having a vision of our ultimate hope, of the ultimate end, changes how we live now. 
It sets us on a trajectory. That's where I'm going. That dictates how I live. And so this is a hinge verse. We, we are to stand firm in light of the dangers. We are to stand firm in the way of following the, mod- the models of chapter 3. In the way of having a vision of our heavenly citizenship. And Paul's focus here is on their endurance. Their persistence. Their perseverance in the faith. That they remain unwavering. Uh, turn to 1 Thessalonians 2.19 to 20, if you will. Um, 1 Thessalonians 2.19 to 20. When we look at this parallel, we'll see very clearly that Paul's focus is this sort of end-time idea. He's looking to Christ's return. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 to 20. If you're not there yet, just listen. He, he says, For who is our hope, our joy, our crown, sound familiar, of exaltation. Is it not even you, that is the Thessalonians, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? That similar language, notice, the joy and crown. He has that in view in in light of Christ's coming. That is, the believers to whom Paul is ministering are to be his, we might say, crowning achievement when Christ returns. But that, of course, requires that they persevere until the end. Paul says similar things in Philippians. He says in chapter 2, verse 16, that they are to hold fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, that is when Christ returns, Paul will have reason to glory because he didn't run in vain or, or labor in vain. That is, his ministry to them wasn't pointless. They persevered. Or in Philippians 1.10, Paul prays that they may be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, until Christ returns. And so they're his crowning achievement because Paul has confidence that at Christ's return, they will have persevered and remained faithful to the end. And so a church that is consumed for the gospel is a church that stands firm. But why? Why is it so important that such a church stand firm, that such a church persevere, remain unwavering, is persistent. Philippians 2, 15 and 16 helps us here as well. It says, we are lights in the world, verse 15. Notice how. We are lights in the world by holding fast the word of life. We can't hold forth the gospel if we don't hold fast to the gospel. We can't hold forth the gospel if we don't hold fast to the gospel. We can't offer that which we have compromised. A church that has compromised the gospel has forfeited all ability to reach the lost with the gospel. And that's why when you occasionally come across these philosophies among churches where if only we compromise these things and make it more appeasing, we'll reach more people. Well, you may for a time reach more people, but what are you reaching them with? What are you reaching them to? You can't hold forth the gospel and win people to a gospel that you no longer hold to yourself. So a church that is consumed by the gospel for the gospel is a church that stands firm in the gospel. But also, more personally, 
thinking of yourself, do you find that you are more apt, more eager, more equipped, more ready to be a witness for Christ when you're slacking off in your Christian walk or when you're standing firm in your relationship to Christ? Thus, it's important that if we're to be a church that is consumed for advancing the gospel, we have to be a church that stands firm. We have to be a church that values each other and a church that stands firm. But number three, a church consumed for the gospel has members who live in harmony with one another. A church consumed for the gospel has members who live in harmony with one another. Verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. To live in harmony in the Lord. Now, you can't tell from the English, and maybe some translations you see this, but it's actually the exact same language that Paul uses in chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, to be of the same mind. Or when he says, to have this mind in you that is also in Christ. It's the exact same language. In other words, this is an application of that passage in chapter 2, where Paul is saying, have this mind in you that's also in Christ. You, be of the same mind. This is an application of that, to be of the same mind. We could paraphrase it this way, to have the same mindset. To be like-minded. So in other words, it's not absolute agreement. It's not like we're robots and clones, like we all think the same thing. And we just like go about, we all have to agree on everything. We all have to like the same sports teams. And even when it comes to ministry things or really uh, minute doctrinal differences. Okay? It's not saying we have to have absolute agreement. The idea is within our diversity of gifts within our diversity of backgrounds and perspectives and things that we like to emphasize, that together there is nonetheless a unified mindset, a unified aim and orientation. That orientation is the advancement of the gospel. So apparently that these two women, because they need to be told to agree, there's some sort of conflict going on. So what is that conflict? Can't really be sure. Uh, it's, it's not, we can know that it's not a, a, some sort of significant doctrinal difference, because Paul, if you know Paul elsewhere, like in Galatians, he would not put up with that. Okay, so we know it's not that. It may have been something more personal between the two women, or it may have been something more substantial, like something about how to conduct ministry, something that really does have some weight. Okay, but we're not really sure. It's important enough that Paul needs to address it. But when Paul tells them to live in harmony, to have the same mindset, he, he first of all roots it, in, he roots it in two things. He roots it, first of all, in the gospel. He says, in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Live in harmony in the Lord. That is based on what is true of you both in Christ. Based on your common faith, your common relationship, your common salvation. We think of Galatians 3 where Paul says that everyone who is baptized into Christ is put on Christ. And in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, etc. There are differences. We have this, Obviously we have these distinctions. But in Christ we have a commonality. There's a sharedness 
in Christ. Or when you think of Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul talks about there is one baptism, one Lord, one salvation, one spirit. Okay, chapter 2 is one people's God, the one, one, one. Because of all this oneness, we live out a oneness. We live out a harmony. It's rooted in the gospel. God has not only reconciled us to him, chapter 2 in Ephesians, but also to each other. We live out what God has accomplished in the gospel through his son. But also notice at the end of verse 3 how he describes these women and others. He describes them as those whose names are in the book of life. Now obviously this is not uh, like a literal book, it's figurative language. Okay, We have this book of life imagery. It's the divine record of the saved. If we we took the time to look at all the uses of this kind of phrase throughout Scripture, we would see that it's it's this roster, so to say, of those who will receive the verdict of not guilty. The record of the saved. God's very record of the saved. And it's associated with the last day. It's associated with, in Revelation, that these books will be opened at the judgment on the last day. That's important to keep in mind. What a powerful way to describe someone. Just just sit and think about that. Whose names are written in the book of life. But also, what an absolutely audacious way to describe someone. Absolutely audacious. Paul has the audacity to make the claim before these books are cracked open on the last day that these believers have their names included in the roles of the saints. To peer into the divine record, as it were, and say, I found your names in there. What an audacious thing to say. These books that are associated with the last judgment to say, even before that has happened, I know that you have your name in the book of life. How can he do that? He does so based on the work of Christ. Based on the fruit he sees in them and based on Christ's death and resurrection. Paul can describe these believers as those whose names are written in the book of life. And if we are believers, our names are written in the book of life with the ink of the Lamb's blood. In Christ, the judgment of God has been poured out on him. And the books of God's judgments have already been opened for believers, and we have already received that end-time verdict of not guilty in God's judgment. Our names are written in the book of life, along with Yodia, along with Syntyche, along with every other believer. And so Paul says, how can we not live in harmony with people who have their names written right next to ours in that book. I think of our culture today that so prizes um, so-called tolerance. It's actually a misuse of that word. Um, But this sort of togetherness, this this non-judging acceptingness, it's valued as an end in itself. And so our culture pursues and promotes this togetherness as something that's valuable 
to pursue as an end in itself. I think of that, uh, there's this recent like, motto by Android that like, goes something like, be together, not the same. This is arbitrary. Our culture tries to create a false sense of unity, but you look around and there is nothing that really unites us besides the fact that we want to be united. We are certainly not the same, but there is nothing that really brings us together. But where our culture fails, the gospel succeeds. Let me read a quote from uh, Dr. Carson. I refer to him Dr. He's my professor, D.A. Carson. Um, that really captures this so well. Most people have their own little circle of in people, their own list of compatible people, their friends. Christian love goes beyond that to include those, those outside this small group. The objects of our love include those who are not in. It must include enemies. The church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in the light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says. And he commands them to love one another. In this light, the church, he says, is a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. I mean, look around. At the, this church, at other churches, only Jesus can do this. I wouldn't be hanging out with most of you people if it wasn't for Jesus. Not that I don't like you, I may have not even met you. But think about it. There's old, there's young, there's, you have, the church is composed of different ethnicities, different backgrounds. All these things that divide us, socially speaking. But Jesus brings us together. This is his new humanity, and he unites us. And so we, we, we are a church consumed for the gospel, and it's rooted in what the gospel has done. But also he bases this on the purpose of our common mission. We're not just consumed for the gospel and live in harmony because of the gospel, but also because we have a common mission. There's, there's a, we have a common goal, a common task, and that, of course, is advancing the gospel. Look at uh, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 3. Paul describes these women as those who shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. That is, in laboring to advance the message of the gospel. Together with Clement, also, and the rest of my fellow workers who have their names in the book of life. Now, I'm not in the military, and I've never been in the military, um, but I can just imagine that if you're in the middle of a battle, for example, you're in the bunker, something like this, and there's a gunfight going on. I can't imagine you're sitting there like bickering with someone about some like personal issue or something, you know, something really small and insignificant. I can't really, I can't even just, that just, it just seems ridiculous, right? You're getting shot at. 
There's an all-too-pressing concern. You're preoccupied with the battle. The stakes are way too high to be really worried about anything like that. This is how the church is. We're in the bunker. We're in, we're in, the, we're in the battle together. We don't have the privilege of being able to bicker about silly things. We have an all-too-pressing, too-preoccupying concern. The stakes are too high. I like to think sometimes of the church as something like a mash unit. And I think that was like prior to my generation. But these like, uh, I, look, I looked it up on Wikipedia. It is a mobile army surgical hospital unit. Okay, or like these field hospitals. There are these, these like hospital things that are on the front lines of battles. And if someone gets hurt, you come in, fix them up, send people out. Okay. I think it's helpful to think of the church that way. We're a mass unit. We're not some hospital in some nice suburb where everything is fine and dandy and you just go there, no big deal, you know, for your sicknesses. We're in the middle of a battle and we come together to equip, to bandage up wounds for the purpose of going back out. And I think if we have this vision, as Paul is saying, that, that one of the ways he wants to ground their uh, their unity is by this common mission. We're in the battle together. We're a mass unit. We don't have the, we don't have the privilege, so to say, of being able to, to have these conflicts, this disunity, this bickering over things that don't matter. The stakes are too high. The battle is too preoccupying. And so we're united by the gospel, but we're also united for the gospel. There's two other things I want us to note that I think are interesting here. Is that note that Paul identifies these two women as individuals serving in what he considers gospel ministry. Now obviously, we're even talking in Sunday school, there are clear differences the Bible describes between men and women. And it's going to flow into clear differences in how uh, men and women serve in the church. But... Nonetheless, he refers to them as women who have served in the cause of the gospel. And I think that this, um, this fact um, pushes against maybe some notions that can circle in our more conservative churches. If we can put it this way, that women are only really able to serve by making brownies and babies. There's significant ministry. There's significant partnership in the advance of the gospel here. Appropriate. Fitting gender distinctions, but significant, part of gospel ministry. But also, in fitting with this, is when we think of gospel ministry, I want to make sure we have the right idea of what we mean by that. In light of what the rest of the book says, this gospel ministry takes on a lot of different forms. We shouldn't be thinking of someone who just gets up and preaches, or someone who goes out and just witnesses the idea of witnessing this is, he says, for example, in 4.15, which he's going to talk about later, that giving money, the Philippians give money, and it serves to advance the gospel. That it's like, I am serving by extension of where my money is going to advance the gospel. Or, you might think of uh, chapter 2, where they send Epaphroditus to Paul, and he refers to this as serving in the gospel. Serving to advance the gospel. That, that this church the, in Philippi is serving Paul, most likely in Rome, by one of their members going there. So there's the, the, the serving in the gospel can take on a lot of different forms. 
It includes, we might say, all properly functioning members of the body of Christ, since it is the task of the body of Christ to advance the gospel. And so no matter what our role is, we're participating in that when we're functioning properly. If we view that, it gives, it gives much more significance to, ta- to all the tasks, no matter what they be. And even if our task is not directly evangelistic, we're serving the church and its task to evangelize. And so every one of us, no matter what our gifts, need to, be, need to view them as a part of gospel ministry, and thus incredibly important, a part of this mass unit, we're on the battle lines kind of idea. Paul actually describes such people as these women, along with Clement and others, as co-workers. That's an apostle talking. Co-workers. The proper functioning of every member, then, is vital to the church's ability to advance the gospel. Everyone needs to pull their weight, so to say. We've been given tasks. We've been given gifts not to sit on our butts with them. We've been given gifts to use them. No matter what they be, they're all important, and it's all vital that we use them. And so the church that is consumed for the gospel is a church that lives in harmony because of the gospel and with this task of advancing the gospel. But lastly, a church consumed for the gospel has members who help other members live in harmony with one another. In verse 3, Paul addresses this person called true companion or true partner. And we're not really sure who this guy is or this lady. It could be a personal name, in which case we'd want to translate it Syzygos, which is how you pronounce it in Greek. Okay? But we're not really sure. It could be something like a nickname. Like I think maybe it's something like Barnabas, which Barnabas wasn't his real name, but they called him that because it meant son of encouragement. Hey, you're encouraging him. Let's call you son of encouragement. Maybe this guy was a good like, co-worker, a good companion, We're not really sure, but whoever this guy is, or this lady, they know who this person was. Now what's interesting about this text is that many texts in Philippians have been encouraging unity, and we've been seeing that. This idea of living in harmony, getting along, humility, not grumbling. But what is unique about this text right here? What's unique is that it is not just telling people to live in harmony with other people. You worry about yourself, make sure you get along with someone else. But it's telling people to live, or to help other people live in harmony with other people. There's this third-party involvement that you have a responsibility not just for your own being in right relationship with other people, but to watch out and help others be in right relationship with other people. We think of uh, like Matthew 18, where Jesus gives instructions about church discipline. And if, if there's a Christian that offends you, a Christian who sins against you and he doesn't listen, you're told to bring a third party into the equation. The principle is that unity and conflict resolution often require third party, an additional person, intervention. And so this implies that we have to be involved enough in each other's lives to do this. That's kind of the implied application. How can this... uh, true partner, true companion, do this if he's not actually involved, if he doesn't know the situation. This isn't just watch out for yourself and make sure you're not in conflict with other Christians, but watch out for fellow members. You have a responsibility as a part of the church, not just for yourself, but for your church family. 
And if you think about it, this really pushes up against common practice and ideas of our contemporary Christianity that views Christianity as kind of this lone ranger project. That you don't really need to become a part of a church. That you can just kind of come and go, you know, just show up, hear the sermon, leave. Don't really become a part of it. Don't really serve. Don't really get to know anyone. Not really being involved. I honestly don't even know how you have the chance, like even like a, like a lottery kind of chance, like a really bad chance. I don't even know how you have that of fulfilling a text like this if you're not involved. It presupposes that there's that intimacy. And so we have to be involved. We have a responsibility for our fellow brothers and sisters. But this isn't, I don't want, I don't want this to come down as like this guilt trip. That, oh man, I feel really bad because I'm not involved enough. Think about how, how great of a privilege this is. Like we are talking about, Christ has created this church and every other church. He's brought us together. We need each other. I need you, you need me, we all need each other. That's why God gives us different gifts. As uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about um, when he was captured and in prison and he was cut off from the community, he would, he would just meditate and write about how the church is this blessed community. It's one of God's most gracious gifts. That we have the privilege of being a part of a community of faith that encourages us and people who have gifts and perspectives that we don't have. And so the church then finally is... The church that is, is consumed with advancing the gospel is a church that has members who help other members live in harmony. And so in closing, we, as we looked at these previous themes and how they're poured into this text, Paul is giving a specific application of them here. The specific application of how this church and how other churches, including ours, that have partnered with him in advancing the gospel can, can continue to do so effectively and with faithfulness. And we've identified four traits in this text of a church that is consumed for the advancement of the gospel. It's a church that prizes its fellow members. It's a church that stands firm in the gospel. It has members who live in harmony with one another, and it has members who help other members live in harmony with one another. Let's close by reading this text one last time and just meditating on its truth. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. God, we ask you that you would again write these words, your very God-breathed words, onto our heart. That you would make us a community that lives out these truths, that you'd help us catch a vision for the beauty of your gospel and that we'd be a people who live as soldiers of Christ, people who, who have a sense of our um, sense of the fact that we're in a battle, 
and that we we grow with passion to advance the gospel, not only for 